0: Welcome, everyone. This is Carlos from SeedCamp. Today I have a special guest, a friend, uh, a founder, uh, an investor, and somebody who also has a a bigger vision about how to change the world. We'll learn a little bit more about that as we welcome Federico Pirzio-Biroli, which I'm always very self-conscious I was telling him about mispronouncing his last name. He's the founder of Playfair Capital, for those of you that are based in London and know of uh, the fund, several investments together, including Pronto.co.uk. If you haven't Mm -hmm. ordered your lunch, (laughs) order it from Pronto.co.uk, there's my plug of the day. Anyway, um, thanks for joining us, Fede. And uh, maybe we start off the way we usually start off with is uh, a little bit of background, kind of Mm post-school. What was the first thing you did? Mm -hmm. And then we'll take it from there.
1: Post-school, the first job I did, the first job I had was actually, um, working as a journalist in Shanghai, um, which was obviously very different than what I'm doing now, but it was a very, it was the best way to go and actually see a new place because I was basically being commissioned to go and to go and, uh, to go and uh, you know, review restaurants and look at events and things like that. So I did that for a year, <clears throat> came back to the UK, was a, worked in film production for a little bit before kind of being disgusted by the frivolity of the industry. Um, and then went to visit a friend in Africa for, you know, what was meant to be six weeks. And I ended up staying for two years, um, then finding a job with UNHCR, doing refugee repatriation, working for Oxfam, working for MSF. Um So very much doing the kind of NGO thing for several years before uh, running away screaming with kind of disgust at a lot of the things I saw in that industry and the operating practices and the competitive nature uh, of the industry, surprisingly. Um, and then basically returned to London, uh, was a lobbyist for a year, did aid transparency lobbying to multilateral and bilateral donors. That was my way of trying to, to help or just to try and you know, do some good and f- fix some of the problems in the industry before actually coming to the conclusion that um, the way to grow an economy an economy sustainably is through uh, entrepreneurship and enabling and empowering entrepreneurs and helping small business thrive. Um, small business is where all the growth comes from. Uh, and I thought, you know, it would be a bit silly to start doing that immediately in Africa. I had to learn the ropes first. Um, and so when I started here in 2010, uh, everything that's been grown, uh, that's been built up since. Um, I now have, you know, we've done 54 or 55 companies in the last few years, uh, been through some failures, been through some successes. It's been a roller coaster, but um, it's been extremely constructive and educational. Um, and I'm now in a position where I kind of feel ready to take these, this, this skill set that I've learned back to East Africa um, um, you know, five years later and start all over again as an early stage investor there.
0: That is like the most comprehensive start (laughs) to finish ever, Uh, but also very, very inspiring. I mean, to some extent, things that I knew and things that I didn't know, I didn't know you were a journalist. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, In the beginning. um, Fed is wearing this really cool vest right now, and uh, yeah, I could totally imagine him with like the press press press. on on it. Um, So we started off uh, kind of learning a little bit about... The time that you spent in Africa, but you know, you kind of alluded to the fact that it was not um, the way that the NGOs operated, mm-hmm. and that other organizations in Africa operated were were, were probably an, a bit inefficient, or mm-hmm. perhaps uh, I don't want I want to avoid certain words, but sure. perhaps not to your liking, if yeah, you will. And sure. maybe before we kind of jump to kind of what the, the new project is, yeah. you, we can. Just to
1: learn a little bit more about
0: that, about what, that. Like, what, what, is, um, what is fundamentally wrong with sort of so
1: the way aid and support is done to, so to emerging economies? It, so especially with macroeconomic NGOs, right? Like actually there's a lot of good work I find, and actually usually most of the good work is being done by unheard of small NGOs, which are usually being seconded and paid by the bigger NGOs like the Oxfams of this world. And uh, it's amazing how competitive um, in a way, these NGOs are, and how much there's a lack of communication between them. The worst thing you can do is underspend, right? Your annual budget at the end at the end of the financial year, right? It, it is literally, uh, it's shocking. It, it's just it's just clear that clear that clear the books, like spend everything, because if you don't have zero left over, then you're not going to get more the year after. And so you just see these warehouses filling up with totally useless things, just like completely, just literally just spending money for the sake of spending money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the, the kind of lack of accountability and transparency and the fact that, you know, to, to they're all, everyone's falling all over themselves to put their sign first, right? As in, we've done this here, we've done that here, without like picking up the phone and saying saying so, and so actually duplicating latrines or anything, like building them next to each other. And so this made me think that actually relatively speaking, stable emerging economies, right? Let's take Kenya or Uganda or countries like this. They become the perfect place to launch a pilot project, right, because uh, the political conditions are relatively stable, um, you know, there hasn't been war or stuff and things like that in a while. And so what ends up happening is a complete saturation of every new NGO launching, launching kind of their new pilot. And so what happens is, you know, it becomes so, it becomes so prevalent, um, and this is something I think not many people talk about, and I think it's, it's a very important point. Um, education is very important in the developing world. Um, you have an entire generation in these, relatively speaking, stable emerging economies, who is 20 years old, coming out of university, and these NGOs have been around for 20 years, sometimes 30 years, right, since they were born. And so they've always been a part of the landscape. And these guys are leaving university well-educated, Right. And really potentially, potentially the entrepreneurs of the future. And too many times instead, I see them being, uh, lured by the bright light, so to speak, right, of a nice, cushy, stable, well-paid job in a big NGO and. Why not? Because, and and they, they see them, why, why wouldn't they? They see themselves. They see these organizations as being permanent, right? Because they've been there since they were born. Why won't they be there for another 20 years? And so they see them as a career path with room for promotion and, and, and salary growth and whatever. And that, there's an, a fundamental disconnect there. These are organizations which are inherently meant to put themselves out of business, right? Yep. Technically, right? They're meant to solve a problem and then go and solve mm-hmm. another one. Yep. And to me, that's a localized brain drain. To me, that is disincentivizing these potential entrepreneurs from becoming entrepreneurs right it's It's actually luring them in the wrong direction and and remove which is significantly impacting growth because it's small business that actually grows economies by paying contributing to GDP, paying taxes, mm-hmm. growing the local middle class um, uh, or giving disposable income to to a growing group of people um, and so that was kind of. You know that kind of thinking is what finally led me to start Playfair here because it's like actually I need to learn the ropes and I need to to learn how how to best help entrepreneurs mm. because when I next go back to Africa um uh that's what I want to be doing because that's a lot more worthy I think to fostering sustainable development than NGOs everywhere. Yeah, I mean,
0: I think that when we were talking earlier, there was a a, a point you made about finding economic opportunity in mm-hmm. areas of highest risk. Yep. Absolutely. And so, and so one thing is to say yes, you started Playfair as a way of, of mm-hmm. learning how to mm-hmm. help these these, mm-hmm. um, these entrepreneurs but at the same time um, you know, the best kind of help is the sustainable type. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways uh, finding investment opportunities that then become sustainable mm-hmm. is probably a far better thing. Yeah. And yeah. you saw something in the European ecosystem yeah. that led you to start Playfair. Maybe you want to explore how the dynamics of risk mm-hmm. that you see that you saw in 2010 mm-hmm. uh, in in the EU is something that you're now
1: seeing in Africa. Yeah, so so there's certain things that are similar. I mean, obviously, very different markets, but let's let's say, relatively speaking, to where London is today in 2010, it was definitely frontier. Right, uh, we were kind of fresh, still still recession was very much in the mindset. There was little early stage capital around and the the ratio of of early stage capital willing to play versus um, uh, uh, the like uh, quality companies looking for, for funding was still very much skewed, right? I venture to say it's actually almost the other way around now, mm-hmm. right? There's almost more capital than there are worth, uh, valuable companies worth funding, mm-hmm. but at the time there was a desperate need for this capital there was maybe 10 angel investors in London that were credible, mm-hmm. right? And the second I put my head above the parapet and said, hey I'm I've got some capital and I've got a certain risk appetite. Then the best company, I saw the best companies very quickly because the barriers to entry were very low and the competition was almost non-existent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in that way, uh, there's a similarity, right, with a drastic lack of capital in emerging economies uh, and in Sub-Saharan Africa, the early stage capital. Mm -hmm. Um, And very much like in London, um, you know, if, like what happened in London, if you're able to operate which I'm very lucky to be able to do but if you're able to operate uh in this, in an environment where people are more fearful and are less bullish um uh and then you know the market grows um as time goes on then being an early mover you know quite obviously being an early mover is a significant advantage and you grow with it mm-hmm. uh and in East Africa right now all right the very earth, it, it's it's even more extreme in the sense that the only very early stage capital available is Usually, being predatory, uh, aggressive, and opportunistic right mm-hmm. let's say it's a couple of private equity guys that have some money that are like, like having a punt at the early stage, and the entrepreneurs are getting screwed over because they don 't know any better they've never been through the funding kind of process, right They see one hundred thousand dollars and they go, "This is unbelievably exciting. i'm going to give you fifty percent of my company, which ironically doesn't help the investors either, but they don 't know it yet because they're not early stage investors yeah. and so and so to me there's a massive opportunity for I see that as an opportunity for differentiation and for acting honorably and 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 behaving as one should behave as an investor and somehow move the needle and try and lead by example and hopefully have others follow in those footsteps um so so yeah that's
0: yeah I mean it's an interesting point about the maturity of the ecosystem Mm. and and how you kind of can weed out Mm. that predatory capital over Mm. time Mm. Um, if we put a pause a little bit on, on the Africa story yeah. and, and revisit that in a second about what your, your plans are and just jump straight into starting Playfair mm-hmm. like uh, and think about that as a startup and the lessons you've learned there just sort of yeah. to kind of you know that, that was kind of an interesting um, period of time yeah at that very beginning phase you know yep. you you were you were one of the first movers into co-working with mm-hmm. uh, Warner with yard Warner, yeah um, you know some some great events there yep. Techstars was housed there for a while, yep. um, hiring staff yep. and then growing know, a team, yep. building a brand. So, you want to just share mm. some of the anecdotes of, of that early sure. days and kind of the, the if you look back at with with twenty twenty hindsight, like oh crap, I wish yeah. I had
1: Yeah, I mean, um, so, firstly, Playfair wasn't kind of the result of a premeditated plan that had been executed well, right? or executed it all. Um, it was almost accidental, right? I didn't have an intention of building a venture capital firm, right? I went into this thinking I've got some capital. I'm really interested in this vertical, in this, in this market, in this sector. Um uh, let's make a few investments and let's see what happens. I was literally thinking I would make three or four investments, right? And I was incredibly lucky to have very good, wonderful mentors, right? In, in, in Passion Capital, uh, and sitting at White Bear Yard, which definitely gave me inspiration to open Warner Yard as well, because White Bear Yard was one of the first co-working spaces in London. Um, but it feels like I very much just kind of put my foot in the accelerator and Time flew very quickly and then within two years woke up realizing, wow, I've got 22 investments now. Um, this is completely unsustainable and I have to, to, to build a team. So everything was done reactively, right? So it was like, okay, the glass is full and it's overflowing. I need to get another glass. And then once that glass overflowed, it was like, okay, I've only got two hands now. Okay. I've, somebody else needs to like hold another glass. And so it was all built reactively, um, uh, to, to, to basically, uh, to manage to, to to have the resources to to to, to uh, manage the volume and and all this need that we had, right, in terms of kind of operational support, legally, financially, um, and everything like that. So, um, I think that you know that is a. Somehow, in a weird kind of way, that is a safer way of growing something, which admittedly is, you know, full disclosure, obviously extremely risky by definition, but, um, but filling out capacity as you become uh, stretched is uh, perhaps less risky than building out capacity and then filling it up, filling it up, right, with, with kind of content and demand. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so I think that that is a methodology that isn't necessarily exclusive to here, right? And that's something that I'll be able to do in Africa as well. And that, that, that's the intention. Um, but the thing is, in terms of lessons learned, it's, it's a lesson, but it's also, it's strange. Because, uh, so we've now hit, hit, reached volume and scale where we're kind of competitive with, with, with other big VCs in London. Um, and along with that comes process. Right, CRM tools, pipeline management like to, to manage pipeline, everything like that um, and that is something that the team which I have wh- which is continuing Playfair which I'm going to be fi- financing from afar as an LP but no longer operationally involved is really they're picking up that ball and running with it admirably I also know that I'm not the best person to be holding that ball, right? Because I'm not I'm not a quant, right? I'm not I I didn't work in finance, right? I wasn't I I'm not the person if things continue for another year as they are, like it's going to become less and less I'm going to become in a way less and less relevant because my skill set is more qualitative, right? More more emotional intelligence than 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 traditional or certainly quantitative intelligence. And so I'm, you know, it's a lesson learned is that I'm almost kind of Making putting myself out of a job in mm-hmm. a way because of like the process that's coming into play, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because I'm just going back now, kind of yeah. to a simpler time where it's more qualitative. Like I was doing checks in the first couple of years where I was very much doing stuff based on gut gut feeling and kind of one to one relationships with the person and I you, met.
0: And do you, do you feel like now if you could do it all over again, you would have a, a sector thesis or you would explore a certain? I mean, like what, what changes? Okay.
1: I think I no I don't think I would have a sciatica thesis if I did it all over again when I did it all when I did it yeah. if I did it if I started today absolutely, I would have to have a sector thesis, right? Mm. The market is healthy. There's a lot of money around, right? The barriers to entry are significant. Getting onto the ladder as a new VC, as a new investor, is that much harder than it was five years ago, right? Because of all the competition. You can't just show up and be like, I'll look at everything. You need to be like, right, I'm going to be in food tech. I'm going to be in, you know, whichever specific vertical. I'm going to just do fintech. I'm just going to do business automation or official intelligence, whatever it might be. But that's become... Absolutely necessary because you'll drown or you'll never make a dent in the market yeah. today. Whereas five years ago mm. there was so much need for capital that you didn't need to have a sector specific thesis, mm. right? So I wouldn't, but that's I wouldn't only because it was five years ago. Mm-hmm. I would definitely would today.
0: Mm. And hiring, I mean you you've yeah. now you've now learned a lot of lessons from over how many companies display for have? Fifty
1: four, fifty four something like that. Yeah. So if you have to say like the
0: top three things that yeah. you see kind yeah. of you know, you said part of the reason why you started Playfoot was to play for us to learn how to help founders. Yeah. So yeah. If you said if you had to wrap up the top yeah. three things that you yeah. probably see go yeah. wrong most often, yeah. what would those be? Okay, so look,
1: you said it yourself. Hiring is obviously number one, yeah. right? We all know this. We talked to all of our entrepreneurs. It's always the biggest, uh, the biggest uh, sore point, uh, to the point where my newest team member, Joe, right, who we hired, who who we hired about a year ago, um, is. Our head of talent, right? He was a technical recruiter at Google, technical recruiter at Facebook. He he goes into our teams and trains them not not just to source candidates, but trains them on how to hire, how to interview, how to quantify the interview process, how to you know how to basically. He's written a handbook, right? Of of a talent handbook of what to do and how to do it, right? Because hiring, you know, when it goes wrong, is hugely impactful to a company, takes at least six months to recover from, is extremely costly in terms of actual, like, physical hard costs, but also soft costs of all kinds in terms of, like, team integration and everything like that. So that's that's um, absolutely the worst. Um, and then, uh, so, yeah, I would say hiring is the worst. Um, and then I think, I think, you know, the best teams really can, you know, with, with, with some foresight, really look into the right metrics very soon. And I think too few teams are tracking metrics early enough, right? And cohort analysis and different things like this, mm-hmm. which are actually extremely, extremely useful from day one. Are often overlooked, right? Mm-hmm. And think, oh, well, it's something we'll do later. But for the purposes of fundraising and everything, that's every single day of analysis that you're doing is mm-hmm. ad- added ammunition, right? Mm-hmm. For that you can supply to mm-hmm. the next investors. Um, and the longer you can paint your your trail, or the longer your trail is in the history, you can paint really yeah. quantifiably the healthier and the more attractive it is for investors later on. Yeah. So there's a two off the top of my head. Yeah. To the top of your head yeah. and.
0: For, if you see something, uh, if you see kind of the things that are, that work mm. here mm. Um, and developed economies and mm-hmm. obviously have access to certain kinds of things, like yep. payment infrastructure, yep. what are the kinds of things that maybe we take for granted yep. now, but yep. that in, in some of the new areas that you're gonna be exploring yep. around the world that, that are still areas of innovation that right. have yet to sort of fully become infrastructure?
1: I actually think, so in what you've just said lies almost the answer to 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 one of the or one of the great advantages right of parts of the developing world right and look i'm, I'm for this for this conversation i'm talking about sub-saharan africa but we here in the west actually suffer from a legacy right of infrastructure uh An infrastructure that people have spent, that we as these economies and our governments have spent billions and billions of pounds, dollars, euros uh, in in investing in, right? Um, But in sub-Saharan Africa, right, where you don't have this legacy, it's almost easier to evolve to the next thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Ubiquitously, right? So mobile payments... Right. You have Mpeza, right, which is 42% of GDP, 43% of GDP of, of Kenya right now. It's a company that's under 20 years old. It's ridiculous. Under 15 years old, I think. Um, but that skips credit cards, right? Let's, let's just not, and let's just not invest in putting any ATMs anywhere. We don't need to. Uh, 4G is so quick, right? You don't need, in Sub-Saharan Africa, you don't need to dig broadband. We have years of legacy. If you think about it, of, Buried cable, which has cost a lot of money, which takes a long time to extract ourselves from to evolve to whatever the the next. And so I actually think that um, some of the things that aren't present in emerging economies are perhaps an advantage because because they allow an evolution, like uh, you know a, a, a remarkable like break, kind of a, kind of increase in efficiency or, or or reduction in cost or whatever of certain services, which is which is possible because we don't have to extract ourselves from this legacy that we've invested in. If that makes sense. And yeah. there's there's
0: different kinds of legacy, and, I, yeah. and this is a bit of a tricky question yeah. because I don't know where innovation has happened mm. yet on this space, and you might be more familiar with it, but financial innovation mm. and specifically investment return for investors yep. that are from certain economies investing in those areas,
1: mm-hmm.
0: how much innovation are we going to leapfrog in traditional maybe venture capital, mm. uh, LP, mm. GP relationships, a yep. 10-year uh, f- uh, life cycle, yep. um, multiples on return? Where is the innovation, yeah. or what innovation needs to happen, so that yeah. a external investors are interested in, mm-hmm. let's say, Africa, mm-hmm. and that there's a way of getting that money out mm-hmm. in a way that, that the that investors feel confident sure. enough to be able to uh, invoke mm-hmm. in emerge, invest in in emerging economies. Sure. What innovation needs to happen? Yeah. Way?
1: So, firstly, I mean, you know, the. the 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 market you know doesn't have seed a, b c d, right which for traditional venture capital on a two and twenty like model with a ten year kind of investment kind of cycle, right kind of leaves leaves it hanging, right because you can't rely on that next growth investor to to provide a great a bigger cushion of capital right to grow. Um, so we have to you know, I think that the traditional venture model. If if it's seen, if it's taken with kind of the principles that we know and adopt here uh, and it's attempted to be applied to in, in emerging economies like this will fall flat on its face because it doesn't have anything to feed into. Right. Um, uh, so so kind of seed investors are going to have to figure out how to get from hundred thousand dollars to five million plus. Right. You have private equity around there. Right. Usually that is going to opportunistically be able to put over 5 million into something. But it's a barren landscape b- between that early ticket and later and later on. Now, um, what's the solution? Maybe maybe it's the early stage investors kind of having the legs and, and recognizing they have to go a lot further, that they have to carry a company a lot further. Maybe it's bigger syndicated uh, angel rounds, right, of b- trying to... Because I'm seeing a lot of companies that um, have very strong metrics that aren't capable of raising a million, right? Maybe it's about... An Angel list model, maybe it's about something, but it's certainly not the traditional venture capital model because that's going to fall flat in its face based on the metrics that their LPs require to be satisfied, right? Yeah. Which is not, which are not going to hold up there, I think.
0: Yeah. So maybe, maybe that, that is the danger. The danger yeah. is that, yep, yeah. just like we're crippled with cable yeah. underground, we're mm-hmm. crippled with a, a risk taking yeah. infrastructure that isn't designed for these yeah. kinds of yeah. economies. And, and I think maybe this is a good transition back to mm-hmm. what you want to try to yeah. do yeah. now, um, is kind of innovating in that space. Yeah. And maybe you can share a little bit now that you're coming with the experience of Playfair yeah. and the background yeah. that you had before. Yeah. What What are the ideas that you have yeah. for the, the your new entry into Africa? So,
1: so okay, for the first time, actually in the last few months and I, and I've been quite surprised because i i'm i would surpri- i was surprised that I would ever think like this, but I have to say that um the rocket model, which you know i've been on detrimentally on the receiving end of many times right for for a rocket coming into uh a vertical of you know several of our companies and steamrolling the market with mm-hmm. a lot of capital and blowing cpc out of the water and everything um i have to say though that in in these in emerging economies they've got a point because what we do as investors a lot of the time here in europe and in the u.s is like look we've got a lot of contacts we know a lot of people right we can help you the entrepreneur, we can open the doors when you need the doors open. We can put you, we can bridge this connection with this growth capital guy or that growth capital person. We know people in specific sectors, which are the people you need to know to raise this, this greater round of capital, right? There's obviously exceptions and people who are more operational, but broadly speaking, as a general, as a massive generalization, that's, that's, you know, a lot of, what we offer as a value add as investors, right? Um, and in some cases, that's all we add. Like in some investment case, for some investors, that's all we add, right? But which is valuable to some people. Yeah. Now, um, for we so in uh, in emerging economies, execution skill sets just aren't there yet, right? The bottom of the pyramid, which, which to me is is um, is uh, is technical talent. Right. Skill sets, developers, things like that haven't been really built sufficiently yet to justify adopting a Western business model of accelerators, for example, where you do a three month program. What's Mm -hmm. the point in getting like 10 teams together if out of all the applicants, how many are going to be realistic companies, 40 or 50? Not only that, they're going to fall off a cliff. Yeah, they're going to fall off a cliff. Right. So, so, um, the Rocket model, right, of actually, and I've seen several copycats of ex-Rocket guys who have started companies, one of which I invested in South Africa recently, um, uh, this model is one that, um, you know, I'd venture to say is better, it's better to be taking 30 or 40% of a company, but deploying DevOps, marketing and sales teams within them than it is to be taking 10% of a company, but being like, oh, I'm going to open these doors, I'm going to help you and I'm introduce you and whatever, because... You don't have A, B, C, D, like you don't have that structure of of multi stage investment. So, what good is that, really? At the end of the day, it's not right. You need to be making revenue very quickly, and you need to be to be supporting operationally to help with execution because it's not going to do itself, right? Mm-hmm. And there's not really many serial entrepreneurs, or or people who have been around the block and who really know some of these pitfalls. So, um, so I'd say that kind of what I'm going to be doing in terms of small ticket sizes in in, in East Africa um, is going to have to involve some operational support, which means leveraging some of my network to actually come and do, who knows, like some embedding within companies for two or three weeks, come to Kenya, come and kind of, kind of come train this sales team, train this marketing team. But that's much that's very, very necessary. And it's something we don't have to do as much here. And we kind of take for granted that people will be able to do this. And most, more often than not, there is a skill set that can do it here, right? Where We can't there.
0: Mm. So you're going to, is it safe to assume that, therefore, that you're going to take some of the similar lessons learned from how Playfair came about? Yep. um, Sort of to start exploring what that environment looked like, like syndicating with local players. Exactly.
1: Syndicating with local players, piggybacking on their rounds, not leading, but following, but still contributing, you know, hopefully doing 12 to 15 tickets in the first year. Uh, That's kind of, yeah. And then, and then
0: eventually, perhaps, coalescing that into... Exactly. Know. Once
1: into a vehicle. Exactly. Like, very much like I did here. Reactively. Reactively every time. Any, any, any early guesses on the name will be... Play, the, oh, the, I, I have no idea. fair, <laughs> south of the equator... Fair play. Fair <laughs> play. Fair play. <laughs> no, no, no play I don't somewhere. know. We'll see. We'll see.
0: Well, look, it, it sounds to me like there's a lot of really cool ideas that you have identified in Africa yeah. that now you're looking really excited to help yeah. people bring. And one of the things that we like to do on this podcast is try to get... The audience to be able to be involved sure what, what ideas do you have in ways that maybe those that are listening could could plug into this uh,
1: what well, in terms of interesting verticals or how so? No, what, in terms of oh of well, look you. get it so particularly as I uh, look, to the point that I've just made right um, I anyone kind of who's you know operate operationally in the trenches? Right. Um, who are people who are COOs and CEOs and everything kind of in, in, um, uh, in kind of a growing startup, you know, probably 30 to 50 people, something. I really want to talk to you. And if you're interested in, if you're interested and would be interested, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world to come to East Africa. There's some fantastic safaris. <laughs> There's beautiful beaches, right? It's like, you know, a few days in Nairobi, it, you know, spent giving invaluable training to entrepreneurs who desperately need it, mm. right? And who are who are also, by the way, unbelievably hungry. Right? Like I mean they the work ethic is just mm. insane there, right? Like yeah. people are queuing outside of a locked office at six mm. in the morning. Um so, you know, there's definitely motivation, but there's definitely there's a huge need for education, mm. right? And anybody who might be willing to help, to even but even remotely in terms of like mentoring on Skype or whatever, mm. I'd love to talk to you because that that's really what is going to be the difference. It's not my money, frankly. It's actually going to be this execution kind of education that mm. is going to make the difference between success and failure.
0: Excellent. Well, for those of you that are listening, we'll put the links up on the metadata for the podcast so you can get in touch with failure. Well, look, it sounds amazing what you're doing and and i hope that you can leverage a lot of this experience of the value brought to the ecosystem has been great working with you here in europe and you know in in some cases i assume you're going to be coming back and spending time of
1: course and look my team is going to be investing business as usual um and so you know i'm not going to be making any operational decisions but i'm going to be an lp basically so i'll be obviously back to check on what they're doing (laughs) excellent (laughs) yeah
0: all right well look forward to having you again and you can update us on yes i look forward to it fantastic excellent Thanks for joining us, and until next time, guys, bye.